you're ready to stop submitting basic applications and winging your interview for your next nursing role, whether you're a graduate nurse or a seasoned healthcare professional, we'd love to exclusively invite you to our secret nurse growth hub, where you can get all of the support to apply, interview and land your next nursing role completely free. All of the resources that we've shared and created over the last three years that have helped 3,000 plus nurses internationally apply, interview and land their next nursing role. So what are you waiting for? Come and join us today. It's completely free. LiamCaswell.com forward slash NGH. Come and join the Nurse Growth Hub today and let's make applying, interviewing and landing your next nursing role easy. young, very passionate nurse. And so I attended the, the prison gates on my first day and the, the prison officer escorted me down to the unit to meet up with one of the nurses who was going to do my orientation. And I <laughs> walked in and she just, you won't last five minutes, look. Oh, <gasps> oh my goodness. Hello, you are listening to the High Performance Nursing Podcast with me, Liam Caswell, where I help clinicians just like you take control of their careers and remove all the things stopping you from achieving your biggest goals. Let's dive in. Hello, beautiful humans. Welcome back to the High Performance Nursing Podcast. I'm so excited. Today, we've got a fabulous guest. I think you're our first guest, Leslie from Wales, <laughs> originally. Yeah, I just love that. <laughs> so, Leslie, Dr. Leslie Barr, welcome to the podcast. How are you? Good. I'm fabulous. Thank you. Fabulous. Well, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm going to introduce Leslie and tell you all the amazing things about what she's achieved over the last 20 years. And I'm sure we haven't covered all of the things here. I will unpack them as we work through this podcast. So Leslie Barr, Dr. Leslie Barr, has been a registered nurse for over 20 years, working in the United Kingdom and Australia, Victoria and Western Australia. She's passionate about nursing and has held many senior nursing and managerial positions in correctional healthcare and public health. Leslie completed, I can't talk today, completed her PhD (laughs) and undertakes research in forensic and adult acute mental health nursing with a specific focus on reducing restrictive coercive practices and improving the mental health care for Aboriginal Australians. Incredible. I just got chills, even though I butchered the intro, which I do every episode, by the way. (laughs) I just got chills. What an incredible career. I'm so excited to dive into it because we haven't talked a lot about mental health careers on the podcast and I'm always trying to fill the gaps and Leslie has been a supporter of high performance last thing is always engaging on our post online and I'm always so so grateful so let's dive in and explore your career no easy task but tell us all the things about your career up until this point take us through the journey tell us the story oh it's interesting because I had no intention of being a nurse so I actually started out studying law and Mm -hmm. so I wanted to be a lawyer and so I was studying law A-level in Wales and finished my A-levels, got my GCSEs. And then and for financial reasons, I wanted to take a bit of time out to earn a bit of money and get a bit of money behind me. And during this time, I actually went and got a job in a nursing home. And it was actually a nursing home and it was the twilight shift. So I don't know if yeah. you remember twilight shift. Yeah. And so my role initially was doing all the ironing and pressing all the sheets and doing all the linen and so I used to work six till ten every evening and then they progressed me towards a care doing care assistant work mm. and so I worked in this nursing home and I with so many amazing nurses they were so caring they were so passionate they had these unique qualities not just as a professional but as a person you know I just instantly connected with that and so they kind of persuaded me to look at into nursing and it was interesting because at the time in Wales there was a big shift from hospital-based training into university-based training and so what emerged was what the group that I joined was the 2000 cohort in North Wales so I actually applied, and when I went to university, uh, he chose uh, adult acute nursing, paediatrics, mental learning disability, and you had to make the decision before you actually enrolled. Mm. So when I went for the year, he said, listen, if you will guarantee your adversary, I mean, this was like, yeah. whoa, this is so, uh, so that's how I got into nursing. And it was totally kind of left field of what, you know, having studied law and was looking into becoming a lawyer, it was just totally different, but absolutely loved it. And I worked with 
really amazing tutors who were so inspiring. The university, the training now is completely different. So it's very generic. Mm. And I remember when I did my training and you could always tell who the mental health nurses were. They were the naughty ones in the back of the room. You know? <laughs> so we had a whale of a time and we, and we really did enjoy it. And unfortunately, what happened was by the time that we actually came to qualify, there was an oversupply of nurses. Oh, can you imagine? Yeah. So at the end of the <laughs> year, at the end of your training what they would normally do is send out all the recruitment managers from all the hospitals and they'd sign you up for a job but they said look there's no there's no jobs you need to go move to England because there is no jobs for you and so we were like gutted because we spent all this time doing this training so collectively we went to the union can you believe Mm -hmm. it this was the first step in our career (laughs) and we went to the union and actually the union really stood up for us and they forced the trusts to create positions for us in mental health. So we were all given jobs in mental health. And it wasn't, you didn't always get where you wanted to go, but it was it was great. And, and I went to work in a, an acute inpatient unit and it was full on. It was a 10 bed unit for vulnerable females. And it was hitting the floor running. Yeah. It was a real eye-opener, but it was good. And I enjoyed it. And I went to forensics over in the UK as well. And that was very interesting. That was a medium secure unit. And I really enjoyed that too. So we decided to move to Australia probably three years later. And before I actually migrated over to Australia, and one of the issues that came up was on the wards, because in North Wales, there's not that many mental health services. So to gain any kind of recruitment promotion, you were almost waiting for what they used to call, you know, dead man shoes, you know? <laughs> and so I had, I was encouraged to apply for a position but I'd only been qualified for 18 month grade position. Mm. I got the position and it was like really awkward, but I got the position, got the promotion, but then we decided to move to Australia for the climate and the culture. And so we moved to Victoria and that was like a huge learning curve, Mm. massive learning learning curve, because as a in nursing, the training has shifted so much towards generic training. And so it was very much, I was working alongside Um, nurses who were trained in general nursing whereas I was trained from a mental health perspective where we got taught lots of counseling skills developing therapeutic alliance spending a lot of time talking with patients and so it it was kind of a little bit difficult to adjust initially Mm. there was very much this medical kind of spin or a focus which I found really kind of foreign and even some of the language it was interesting when you move to a new country you just Kind of underestimate the impact that uh, mm. language has so when someone asked me to go and get a milo i thought they meant a blanket oh, yeah okay. so i we worked i worked over in melbourne uh, and i've just been back to melbourne and met up with some people from there last week i worked there for a year but the climate was just way too cold for me mm. we don't <laughs> so really we, live for cold weather <laughs> no and i was really shocked when i found out they were sorts and i'm thinking <laughs> that wasn't on home and away and neighbors what is going on <laughs> so yeah so we i decided to move to perth just to see if we can get settled and our daughter was she was six at the time and so moved to perth and it was interesting because i just got promoted to associate nursery manager in melbourne so i kind of took the promotion then not long after i decided no let's move Hmm. so we moved to perth and initially i didn't work because it was really important for me to get our daughter settled into school and into a routine and then i applied for a job in the april and i thought you know i'll pick up a, a, a job in the community or something and i hadn't heard anything and it was going to september and i'm thinking oh what's going on isn't there meant to be a shortage of nurses and so I decided, I got offered a position working in the prisons over in Western Australia. And I hadn't worked in the, in the actual prison setting. I'd worked in the inpatient and community forensic setting. So it's, it's a bit of a different environment to work mm-hmm. in. And it was really interesting because, you know, I was this young, very passionate nurse. And so I attended the, the prison gates on my first day, and the, the prison officer escorted me down to the unit to meet up with one of the nurses who was going to do my orientation. And I <laughs> walked in, and she just, you won't last five minutes, love. Oh, 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 oh my goodness. And that was in front of the oh, prisoners. I mean. And it was like, oh, okay, that's a good welcome. <laughs> but I actually thoroughly enjoyed my time in the prisons. The the, the issue that, you know, it's, it was quite confronting for me wasn't the prisoners, it was the fact that, you were really working as an autonomous practitioner. Mm. So you're working on your own, essentially. 
and my role was the mental health nurse at risk coordinator so I had to go and you know assess all the new admissions to the prisons assess all the patient prisoners who were at risk of harm to themselves or other people people on hunger strikes and you know the role was really an important role because the prison and particularly the superintendent and assistant superintendent really relied on your professional opinion around how to safely manage the prisoners so I worked there for a good number of years and I also did some satellite support to some of the other regional prisons as well and then I got the opportunity to apply for a brand new inpatient clinical nurse specialist position in the forensic unit Mm. So I applied for that and I got that as a, on a temporary basis as a project officer to set it all up. Um, and so I did that and then the, permanent, the position became permanent. So I was successful in the permanent position in the forensic. And from there, I kind of moved through a number of different roles within that organisation. So I was the nurse manager at some points in time. I was a staff development educator, director of nursing coordinator of nursing so I kind of moved in and around positions within that particular part of the public health service and then I also stepped a little bit outside of direct like nursing care and I got a job working for the chief psychiatrist's office Mm -hmm. and they flew me all over the state and my role was to go and conduct audits around mental health services across western Australia and it was inpatient units it was community services and some regional services and I think the most bizarre one that I had was there's me this little Welsh girl ends up in this remote area this remote town and I'm trying to find the directions to the and I've got my suitcase completely no idea where I am and so I managed to find someone to ask directions and they're pointing me in the direction of the local radio station and I'm thinking, is it my accent? And I don't have a strong Welsh yeah. accent, but Australian <laughs> accent. Um, but actually, the community mental health service was operating within the same building as the local radio station. Wow. And my office was actually in one of the, the broadcasting rooms. <laughs> it was really interesting. Yeah, so I've done a little bit of that. I've also done quite a lot of project management. So project lead for developing, designing and implementing first ever um, adult health court diversion program in Western Australia, which was really interesting. I thoroughly enjoyed that. So, yeah, I think one of the highlights for me was working and leading the the forensic service in Western Australia because the role, the nurse director role and the coordinator of nursing roles covered everything from court diversion to prisons to inpatients to community across the state yeah wow you know and it was it was interesting and I also then moved across into older adults so Mm. I had lots of transferable skills to apply to a completely different population Mm. and it's really specialist area and then you kind of move across and you know it's funny because when you get into a particular specialty you know you develop this concept that well we're special you know we need all these resources and we do things so different what we do is so important and in fact every specialty is important and every specialty you know needs all of the available resources to be you know put Mm -hmm. into them Um, Mm -hmm. but it's interesting when you move from one specialty area to another and it's kind of like it's the same concept from the manager the leader perspective it's just Mm -hmm. a different population that you deliver the service to yeah and so then during all of that working within the forensic services I embarked on a number of quality improvement activities with a professor from one of the universities and so we you know kind of she casually mentioned oh let's you know write a journal article and get it published so we do that and then she convinced me that we're going to pull all this together and why don't you do a master's you know it's really simple and it's really easy going so she convinced me. Uh, so I applied for the master's through the university and uh, they came back and said, look, it's great your proposal, but it's too much for a, a master's. So either convert to a PhD or reduce your research outputs. So, you know, my professor again, and she's absolutely <laughs> amazing. Diane, she convinced me to do the PhD. And so, yeah, I've just finished my PhD now, which is fabulous. And I must say the, the work that we did, it really... For me, it was important because it gave a voice to forensic mental health nurses because it doesn't matter where in the world you work, it's a very closed shop business Mm -hmm. forensics and Mm -hmm. forensic mental health. 
And it's very much this secret squirrel business that goes on behind these high fences with barbed wire and cameras everywhere. And, and I think what was important for me was giving the voice to people, to the nurses who work in those services about what the challenges are to mm. work there. An increasingly generic men, generic nurse training that's, that's going on across the world. It's not just yeah. in Australia. And the fact that when students are in university, they only have such a small fraction of training in mental health and even access to mental health placements is so small that they don't feel confident or comfortable when it comes to going on placements or when they're graduating. And they also get a lot of negative feedback from nurses in yeah. general wards. Don't go to mental health, you'll be skilled. Yeah. You know, once you go into mental health, you lose all your skills and no one will want to employ you. And so mental health particularly does get a bad name, but forensic mental health also gets a bad name. Mm. But it's, for me, it's been a thoroughly enjoyable career. It yeah. really has. It's incredible to hear. I love asking people this first question because it highlights so many things that we talk about on this podcast all the time. From lawyer to linen press, to care assistant, to building your career, to having a PhD in forensic mental health and giving a voice to the population of mental health nurses globally. Incredible. So if anybody's listening and thinks, I can't do that, I can't do this, I just want you to take all the inspiration and permission from Leslie's experiences and apply that to your own career. It's so, so powerful. There are so many things I want to ask you about. The first thing that I want to ask you about is you had lots of different shifts in your career. And you can have touched on this, but one of the biggest reasons why people don't want to make a move or take that leap or like move into a different specialty is because they're so invested in what they're doing and they believe that they have to stay there for an eternity and wait for that person to pop their clogs and then, then we can move into that job. Yeah. But the other side of it is this idea of, oh, well, I have to be the beginner again. I'm the imposter. How did you navigate that through your career? I think one thing that's been really, really important for me to keep things fresh, to keep me nimble, is that I've always tried to move around at least every five years. And it, it's not, it doesn't have to be a completely different hospital or a different trust or a different country, but it can be within the organisation. But just try and maneuver your way around because what's actually really interesting is this concept of a comfort zone. So mm -hmm. it's really easy to get stuck in this comfort zone. And we've all worked with a nurse that's been, you know, in the same job for 25 years and they hate any kind of change. And it's, you know, <laughs> my goodness. I remember I went to work in one, um, don't make a suggestion about that. And um, yeah, and it was like people almost get, and I think, and so for me, that's always been in the back of my mind is that I really feel it's important that you do need to be able to move out of your comfort zone. Because mm. what it does for me, it makes me think, right, what's the skill set, set that I have? What are the transferable skills that I have? And what do I need to do to build the gap between where I'm going to or where I went ahead to? Mm. And so that would often lead me to look at ways that I can upskill. So whether it's doing a course, whether it's doing a bit of reading, doing a bit of journal, journaling, whatever it might be, or even just networking. And I think, you know, some, sometimes people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. But I think what's important is if you feel that you've got the support of people to carry you through this movement and get you out of your comfort zone, that half the battle is won. It's mm. when you want to strive to move out of your comfort zone and you don't have appropriate supports yeah. to allow you to take that step. Yeah. So I know from a own professional perspective, you know, I've been a clinical supervisor for a number of people in different states and in different services, whether it's forensic or acute mental health. And a lot of the time there is that anxiety about I really aspire to be you know, in this position, doing this role, but I'm not confident, I'm not com comfortable. And it's about, you know, saying, hey, you can do it. Anyone can do it. Yeah. You've just got to have that plan, work out what you need to develop yourself, feel confident so that you can walk in the role and give yourself permission to say, I'm new. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you've mm -hmm. only got a period of time that you can actually yeah. say that I'm new. So while you can make the most of it, yeah. ask lots of questions. So for me, I think it's a number of things that are important for people to move that comfort zone, shift where you want to work, 
learn new skills, meet new people, expand your your, your, your social and professional network. Mm. And I think mm. that for me has been really important. Yeah, I love all of that so much. And I think that when I think about imposter syndrome and making a shift in your career, I think what we tend to do, it's kind of how we've been conditioned is to focus on what we lack instead of focusing on all of the transferable skills that we can take with us on that journey. And what I love about your journey is you like are the epitome of a multi-passionate cross-pollinating clinician, right? That's what I talk about a lot, which is like you gather skills from each area and you just bring them to the next and you sprinkle your amazing, you know, nursing skills here and then you move to the next and you just cross-pollinate. And there's such power in that. I think people underestimate Mm. how much power there is in that and how it makes you so much more employable. Gone are the days that you stay in one job for 20 years and that's the progression route. It's now you're having 15 career changes, you know, in a lifetime. So I love that about your career. Tell us more about forensics, because you mentioned that there's some secret squirrel business going on in there, and we'd love to know what's happening. I, for one, wouldn't have the foggiest what happens there. So do indulge us, tell us. We have people from, you know, student nurses right up to senior nurses that I'm sure have no clue. So tell us all the things. Yeah, look, so forensic nursing is really, it's not just about being a nurse with or working in an inpatient acute unit that's got all these CCTV and keys and etc. And it's not even just being a mental health nurse working within those settings. And what this was one part of my PhD research was looking at what are those unique skills that nurses need to work in a forensic environment. And so obviously for anyone who most people wouldn't have even been in a prison, hopefully not. But no, a prison is what it is. It's a prison. People go there because they've committed offences. There is a high percentage of prisoners who have mental health issues. And so the role of the mental health nurse is so important in assessing prisoners when they come into the service, identifying those who are unwell and ensuring that they are connected and reviewed by the psychiatrist who come and do a usually a clinic once a week, et cetera. And, you know, supporting them with their medication and, mm. and helping to develop some discharge pathways so that, you know, you hope that you can keep them out of prison. There is a proportion of them who are very, very sick, who the as the, the prison mental health nurse, your role will be to refer them through to inpatient services mm. so that they can then access assessment and treatments in the appropriate uh, environment. And so you also, there's also another role, which is in the court, which is another really interesting role where when people get arrested and they go to the police lockup, the, the, the mental health nurses will look at who's been arrested and who's locked up. They'll look to see if they've got a mental health issue and they'll touch base with them to see if they need any support or if they're unwell or if they need to be linked in with services. And sometimes the lawyers will request that the person gets a mental health assessment. And then the court nurses will then appear in court and address the court and they will advise the court on what their their assessments are just the court about needs to be seen or referred to mental health services. And so the mental health nurse role in the criminal justice system is absolutely critical. I mean, that can be, you know, the mental health nurse role can mean that someone will, could end up in prison mm. when in fact they should be in hospital. Yeah. And that is can be life changing for some people. Mm. So there, there's so many different roles in the forensic mental health setting. And there are so many unique skills that people need to develop. And there's a, a lot of qualities that me- forensic mental health nurses need to have. Mm. So some people try and get into forensic mental health nursing for the wrong reasons. You know, there's this used to be this really old concept of the the mental health nurse with the big bunch of keys swinging it on their belts and locking people up. And, (laughs) you know, this really negative kind of stereotype of what a mental health nurse is. But actually, the mental health nurses that are successful in the forensic mental health setting, they're the ones that can listen. They're non-judgmental. Bearing in mind, some people have committed some very serious offences, you know, some high profile offences, offences which people find repulsive. And so being a forensic mental health nurse, you've got to be able to, what one of our study participants reported, you've got to be comfortable to sit with some of that Mm. and not be judgmental. And that can be quite challenging for some people. 
But it's important. Some of the other important qualities are is to the leadership. Quite a lot of difficult clients sometimes. Mm -hmm. You know, verbal and physical aggression is a daily occurrence for forensic mental health nurses. And for me, when I was working on the wards, and some people, I think some people think that I never actually worked on the wards because I always worked in mental health leadership positions. But I've worked on the wards for many years and I have been the subject of verbal and physical aggression. But for me, when I'm working with people with mental health issues, the way I interpret it is that this person that the aggression i'm seeing is the manifestation of the illness Mm. underneath all of this aggression is a very fearful person who's in pain and they're suffering and so working in the forensic setting you have to have this ability to tolerate some behaviors that are challenging be non-judgmental and to have some empathy and to really be able to sit and feel comfortable engaging with some of the most difficult clients in our society. So it's, and that was why it was important for my PhD research to actually go to the mental health nurses and say, what are the, the qualities and skills do you think someone needs to have to work successfully mm-hmm. in, this, in this environment? So that was very, very interesting. I think it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and the qualities and, you know, this connection between general nursing training and how it's so general, like general now versus the specialist training. So I think that in the general training nowadays, we have this resistance to like people, you know, like people being aggressive or people being verbally aggressive or physically aggressive. And it sounds like in the forensic space, it's kind of like almost an expected thing, right? Given the nature of the work that you're doing, but you're able to hold space for that prisoner you're able to hold space for them you're able to hold a non-judgmental space and I think that in my experience that's something that I think we could probably take into the general nursing field for sure because there's just a lot of resistance in that space in my experience right this patient shouldn't be doing this and I love what you said there and it's something that I say to myself (laughs) which is everybody is suffering in some way shape or form right so let's not make it mean anything about you and what you've done let's really look at it through a curious lens and be like what what's going on that's our job right that's our job as clinicians regardless of where it's work and I think the, the, the difference with the forensic setting is there's a real focus on three basic concepts of security. So there's the physical security, which is, you know, the locked doors, the CCTV, the high fences, the barbed wire. And then you've got your procedural security, which is all the, you know, your checks and balances, you, you're monitoring the patients and your sling and all that kind of stuff. And then you've got your relational security which is as a a professional knowing about boundaries knowing about appropriate communication and respectful communication and understanding it from a patient perspective so their internal environment what's going on for for them from a mental health perspective from a legal perspective and trying to anticipate some some of the flashpoints that may lead to someone becoming aggressive and violent Mm -hmm. and so the way it translates into practices the more the the higher risk patients that you have, you actually increase some of those three pillars, so to speak. So the more dangerous they are, they are put into a uh, an environment where the physical security is a lot higher. And as the risk goes down, then you know the the physical environment can, can become less secure. But then that that actually means that you need to be more aware and engage some of the other parts of the security, the relational security, making sure mm-hmm. the policies and the procedures are adhered to. So, you know, that if they do become unwell, if they go and take drugs, that they you know, might make them aggressive or violent, that, you know, you've got all those procedures and practices in place to mm-hmm. monitor that and then be able to respond to that so you can keep each other safe. And I think the, the thing is, aggression and violence in the workplace is not acceptable anywhere. But unfortunately, for our patients within the forensic setting or our consumers one of the presentations that they present with but to say saying that there's I've seen some amazing nurses completely de-escalate a very violent patient and it was all to do with the way that they communicated and get engaged with a person and I think that's one of the things that is lost in the current training is that the students are coming out and they just don't feel that they've been given enough training to be able to engage 
um, their mental health patients. And so what they lock themselves in behaviour where they know what they've been told what to look for when someone starts to escalate. So instead of engaging with people to prevent the escalation, they're just sitting, waiting, they're waiting for it to happen so they can press a button, press Mm -hmm. the dress alarm to then respond. So the real skill is being able to sit with the patient, engage with the patient so that you don't have those points of escalation. Yeah, it's so interesting. And and the applications to a non-mental health space as well is just tenfold. We have such a gap there. Yes. We have such a gap in our ability to build that relation that relational security with our patients because we're so caught up in the tasks you know and I think we dive into that a little bit and I think you're right in the sense that there's a disconnect there and if we could Mm. just build stronger rapport with people on the front end and invest that time and it doesn't like people think that means like sit down and they'll say things like oh Liam you've not been clinical for years and you're out of touch it just means saying hi hi Leslie I'm your nurse and I'm here to look after you today you know anything anything you need literally Um, I'll tell you a funny story so I went for the age one emergency department and so I went to the the handover station and it and there was almost like this giggle like oh sorry we've used all of the PRN and it was a night shift we've used all the PRN so the patient can't have any more PRN until tomorrow so it was a female with a a borderline personality disorder and they've been using the PR you know quite challenging um, behaviors and I went into the cubicle and I introduced myself and I said you know we're gonna have a really good night and she was like oh yeah okay and I said and I've just had my nails done so we're not gonna have any restraints today because I don't want to break a nail and it you know even just that kind of joking we had a great shift you know but it's that ability to just engage with people and uh, yeah and work with what you've got you know I've I've worked with amazing nurses and you know you hear it all the time that the 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 wards are short and crikey even when the wards are short the nurses that I've worked with have been amazing they've pulled out Mm -hmm. all the stops they've done everything they can to make sure that the patients are well looked after and you know it, it always warms my heart when I work with people who no matter what challenges they face they're out there and they're professional you know and they do the job really well yeah it is it's literally the smallest of things that create safety for people hey especially in those moments I think that that's such a key takeaway from today I would love to explore your research and what you've been you've touched on this a few times but tell us more about your PhD and the research and the publications and what lessons you can learn that you're like you know putting forward to the world of forensic and and more broadly nursing? So my PhD focused on the use of restrictive practices in the forensic mental health setting. When I say the words restrictive practices, what I'm talking about are the practices, which is seclusion, restraint, and also the use of medication to sedate people. Look, one of the reasons why I chose that was because when I worked in the UK, they, they, they didn't have seclusion. It was banned like in the in some places in the 1990s. So it's a foreign concept for me to come to where it was used it like a lot. And so I was kind of wanting to understand what what's behind all that. Why is it that some countries do use it and some countries don't use it? And so for example, in the Netherlands, they they don't really use medication as the first line management. They'll just um, use straps and strap people to beds and leave wow. them to calm down. And so practices change across the world. And so that what is it that's going on there? So what I wanted to do was look at some of the, the, the nurses' decision makings and some of the attitudes around the use of those practices. And what the first study that we did, we looked at the nurses' attitudes towards the use of PRN medication in the mental health inpatient environment. And we actually compared the attitudes and practices of acute adult mental health nurses versus forensic mental health nurses to see, is there something different you know, do they apply the, the the thought processes? You know, when they're thinking about giving a patient PRN, is there anything different? If I'm a patient, will I receive different treatment if I'm cared for by a forensic mental health nurse or an acute mental health nurse? And the research showed that there was some differences. And that, that's important because you can then understand, well, why, why is that difference? And one of the things that we found in the a couple of our studies is that the forensic lesson and so what came out of the qualitative data was that the nurses felt that they didn't have enough training and education to provide alternative 
interventions to seclusion and restraint mm -hmm. and medication as a, as a station. And so that was their go-to because they didn't know what else to do. There was also differences in the, the assessments for, for patients when they're admitted into drug and alcohol screening happened to them after that because of a lack of assessments. Mm. And so there was also a lot of discussion about the interdisciplinary team working, specifically around the fact that nurses felt that the medications usually weren't enough for a patient when they first came into a facility, that there needed to be a more robust medication regime so there wasn't an over-reliance on PRN medications to manage that aggressive and violent patient. Mm -hmm. So that was interesting because that led to some policy improvement activities within that service around improving that. So that was that's kind of the first step into it. And then, then I wanted to look at, you know, for those nurses working in the forensic setting, what, what are the challenges? So what are the things that are critical that can make them feel safe to give them job satisfaction? So we looked at some of, asked them, we did some interviews with the nurses and a lot of the themes were around, they love working in forensics. It's, it's one of those areas where it's, it's very specialized, it's very unique. And once, once, when people go and work there, you either absolutely love it or you absolutely hate it. And so one of it, you'll stay there and you'll stay there for years. They absolutely loved it. It's a very interesting clientele, very interesting position within the health, justice and social health systems. And some of the challenges that came out of the research was the fact that inconsistent leadership and lack of leadership really made them feel unsafe. Mm -hmm. So, and you, you'll be able to relate to this, and I know I can, is, you know, when you walk on a shift and you look who you're working with, you go, oh, this is going to be a good shift or it's going to no. be a really bad shift. <laughs> and so the other thing that came out was this, the inconsistency in the leaders on that shift. So, you know, you'll have one that will say, you know, Patients can only have, well, this is old, old school, but mm -hmm. patients can only have a smoke at designated times or the gardens can only be opened at mm -hmm. designated times where someone else will be a bit more liberal and less fixated on the routine. And the staff felt that that actually put them at risk because mm -hmm. it created uncertainty for the staff, but also for the patient, potential points of conflict and violence. Mm -hmm. And so what they reported, which I thought was very interesting, is that on the shift, they actually align themselves with an unofficial leader. Mm -hmm. So it's someone in that team, on rostered on that wall, who they feel has got their back, mm -hmm. that they feel is going to make sure that they go home in one piece, that yeah. they're not injured, they're not exposed to unnecessary risk. And so whilst you have the official leader on, allocated on the ward, the, the actual team would align themselves with this unofficial leader. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really interesting, you know, and I think it's important for leaders to know that. So if you do take on the important role of being a leader on a, whether it's a ward coordinator or a CNS or a manager, that you need to be aware about, and I call it workforce wellness, mm -hmm. but what's the barometer like? You know, do your staff feel, you know, the managers have got their, feel mm -hmm. safe, because feel safe, it's not going to be really interesting. Then we looked at are there any nurse, nursing characteristics or are there any patient characteristics that increase the probability of seclusion and restraint being used in the forensic setting on a shift-by-shift -shift basis? So over six months, I collected data for every shift across six months. So that's wow. a lot of data, wow. a lot of data. And so from a nursing characteristic, I looked at female. I looked at whether we had, our, you know, the, the ratio of RNs and ENs. I looked at the ratio of casual versus overtime versus permanent or fixed term. And then I looked at the day of the week. I looked at the month. You know, are there some things that kind of indicate, yeah, you're going to get more seclusion or restraint? And it was really interesting, the results. I expected some different results. So when I got the results, it's like, this is really strange. So I thought, you know, with, if you've got a lot of staff are doing a lot of overtime, you're going to get more seclusion and restraint because people are less tolerant of bad mm -hmm. behaviour. And so you're going to get more events. Actually, no, there was no correlation between overtime use, whether you had lots of agency on shift or casuals wow. or permanent or male and female, which goes against a lot of studies that have been conducted in similar services elsewhere. Mm -hmm. What we did find, though, it was the presence of the, the nurse leaders 
the shift coordinators and the, the CNSs, the nurse managers, that actually influenced whether there was an increased or decreased use of seclusion or restraint. And that in itself was interesting. Mm. So, yeah, so that's what, what, what my work was all about. And it really produced some interesting, interesting results. Yeah, that's fascinating. I, I'm so curious about the what the things were that the leaders were contributing on those days that there was more use. Was it just, what did you find? So it, it requires further research, but what we found was it actually can contribute to an increased use, but also a decreased use. Mm. And so again, what I think it is, it's this idea of the, the nurse leader, the position as being critical to people being safe. So mm. for example, with the ward coordinator position that you see that's based on the ward, they are there, they like have got their eyes going, they're scanning the environment, they're um, assessing the, you know, the, the barometer of the, the feelings of the team, and they can respond very, very quickly. And so I think a lot of the leadership influence on seclusion restraint is really highlights the importance of having very supportive nurse mm-hmm. leadership, not just at executive level, not just from a unit level, but actually on the ward and for me, it highlights the fact that when we do put out promotional opportunities for nurses to apply for leadership positions, this really needs to be more of an onus on organisations to provide leadership training. Yeah. I know when I applied for a position, an E-grade position in Wales, it was actually a requirement that I went and did a management leadership course. And it wasn't mm-hmm. by the health department. I was being trained with the managers from Asda and Safeways and yeah. Woolworths manipulated health mm. department leadership management. It was a real proper one. And yeah. I think some sometimes we do put people in leadership roles that have no training, they don't have the confidence. Mm. And sometimes they adopt some of the leadership roles that they see in other people. Yeah. And sometimes that can be really good, but sometimes that can be really oppressive mm. and professionally rude. And I'm not sure what's behind that, but I think that's why we need to really give people the skill set so they can provide their team with the support that they need to feel safe. Because yeah. at the end of the day, people in mental health mm-hmm. services and forensic services that use seclusion or restraint do so because of the safety issue. It's a perception mm-hmm. about safety, whether it's yeah. to the staff or the patient or to other people. Yeah. So, yeah, it was just really interesting. And I think it just does highlight that the we can't underestimate the role of in our organizations mm, mm. yeah and i think that so many people i talk to people every day that want leadership roles for i would say in a judgmental way for all the wrong reasons for all the reasons that i wanted those roles in the past as well you know i get more income i get more growth but there is a there's a key gap there in the sense that I always say it, we can be great clinicians, doesn't mean yes. we're going to be great leaders, right? And it doesn't mean that that next progressional step is always the right step for you. And I think one of the best things I did was went and did my Masters of Health Leadership and Management and got some theoretical understanding of leadership and management and culture. And whilst that wasn't, you know, the be on end all, it gave me a foundation to be able to look and go, oh my goodness, like really these jobs, it's great to be a clinician in these roles, but especially NAM in particular, could be a non-clinician is my personal take because it's a business. It's a, it's a system. Exactly. And it needs strong leadership. So it's interesting that there's a link there with safety. And we talk a lot about psychological safety here. So we've still got some work to do there. Hey, And I think that gap is our CNs get the job and they're like, yeah, it's great. And then we can't retain them. We can't, they don't want to move up to CNC. They don't want to move up to NUM because they see what's ahead of them and they look back and they're like stuck in this position. So it's also, I think the other thing is that when you do go jump into those management leadership roles, it's like you, you know, you, you cross this threshold of death because (laughs) as soon as you walk into these positions, everybody hates you, you know, because you're seen as the enemy. And I think that is a real, I think I always find that very sad in the, and I always have said to people, it doesn't matter what position I sit in, whether it's, you know, director of nursing or nurse manager or, you know, a clinical nurse specialist. I, my role is just different. I'm still a nurse. I just have different priorities and I've got different outcomes and objectives and goals and KPIs that I need to meet. Yeah. I'm no different. I'm not here. I'm not lying in bed thinking, oh, what can I do to upset the nurses? <laughs> I actually said to people, I don't do that. 
you know, the, the responsibility within those leadership is also to deal with those horrible things like poor performance and, mm. you know, bad behavior. And, yeah. you know, and I've always said to people, you know, I will always back every single nurse, absolutely every single nurse, but I cannot defend the indefensible. Mm. And you wouldn't expect anybody to do that. But I, I always have worked from the mindset that not one nurse I've ever worked with has ever intended to come to work to do a bad job. Yeah. yeah. And so, and I've always conveyed that to my non-nursing colleagues is, for me, there's usually something under underneath. If there's been a major incident or a stuff up, for me, that person hasn't woken up and said, I'm going to go in there and I'm going to cause injury to a patient or to another staff member, or I'm going to make a really bad decision around following policy and procedure and usually when you sit when I sit used to sit down with people it would be because you know we're very time poor or I had like 10,000 different things I needed to do Mm. so for me that's an important principle around trying to work out what is it that makes people sometimes behave in ways that can really jeopardize their careers Mm. Um, and I've been involved in a lot of work on incident investigations and professional investigations as well throwing someone under the bus we need to work out what were the what were the factors that contributed to this incident that person Mm -hmm. did not make that decision to go and do something terrible so we need to try and prevent that happening again because it will happen against someone else yeah I think that we could talk on that for hours because I completely agree with you and I think that maybe the reflective process or what we currently do I don't think is adequate enough in these processes because we have people that then you know we say oh well we were too busy this happened and these are factors that contribute to that but then there's also like well what's happening internally what's going on in your mind like what thoughts are you having how are you feeling how did those feelings drive your actions you know how did that end up in this result and I think that there's a gap there or maybe we're too scared to approach it or we just it's easier for us to just say it's busy and all of the things so maybe another PhD (laughs) Not for me, thank you very much. Maybe if anybody's listening, be- there's a great space for you to <laughs> dive into and explore. But no, it's all so fascinating. It's just such evidence that you really can do whatever you want with your career. And I think that it's incredible to see what you've created in this space. And thank you for helping us see forensic mental health and the work that you do through a different lens today. I know it will inspire lots of people. I would love to wrap up with a final kind of pledge to people that have that stigmatized view of mental health because I know you touched on it earlier what would you tell someone that's thinking about becoming a mental health nurse in any way shape or form or has maybe been given a mental health placement or a graduate year and they're feeling a bit like what the hell yeah and look and I have had that question I've had students like oh I don't, I, I'm, you know I'm really scared to be coming to this team and you know I always say to people It's actually a really good thing if you're very nervous and you're scared, particularly to go to a forensic mental health setting. If you went, I would actually be a bit worried that you don't have the situational awareness that you're walking into an environment where you are working with high risk patients. And so for me, when I talk to people, I say, you know, yes, it can be a very dangerous situation, the place to work. And the most, the safest place I've ever worked in was the prisons. Mm. And everyone's really surprised Mm. when I say that. But I think that the the reflecting on my career and I've and I've actually just now taken a break. So I've gone to live in the middle of nowhere and you know I'm doing consultancy work and you know and everyone will gasp like my goodness, you you know, you've walked away from this really high powered, well-paid position to like not work for anyone except for yourself. Yeah. Because of nursing is there are so many opportunities to grow. There is, it's so, such a diverse specialty area to work in. You could literally change and move positions every five years and you learn so much. And when I hear that, you know, students and nurses are being told, don't go to mental health because you will be completely de-skilled. And I would challenge that. Amazing opportunities. Um, I've just been, yesterday I was on a panel with the, the Australian New Zealand Psychiatry College as a spokesperson for nurses, I've been on expert panels for the for the police force. You know, I've been uh, been given so many opportunities mm. that so interesting. So I think there is so many opportunities to diversify. There mm. are so many career opportunities. If you don't like inpatient work, 
there are court there's court work there's prison work there's mm. community work yeah. there is a, literally a niche for everybody to yeah. really energize their career so yeah i mean for me it's an amazing an amazing career choice yeah. so i would encourage people to do it yeah, there's such growth in mental health careers, right? Because it's all relatively new. The evidence, the research, we still don't know so much about it. So there is so much growth here. And I always remind people that mental health nursing is the foundation of all the work that we do. Every human has a brain and has emotions, <laughs> has behaviors. They all, you know, most people, if you look at the stats, have some form of mental health condition and we need to be able to learn how to deal with these patients and manage for manage them, care for them respectfully and deliver the best patient care in any setting. So that's my little two cents right there as well. Dr. Leslie, incredible to have you here. I'll just refer to that because you worked so hard for it. And my partner doesn't use his doctor title. I'm like, you need to be putting that on your plane ticket. Yes. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time today. It has been a pleasure. Where can people connect with you, get in touch, read your research, tell us all the things? Yep. So if people want to have a look at my research, go straight to Google Scholar and just type my name in all the papers. There's, there's 12 publications there that people can have a look at. And you can also connect on LinkedIn as well. So I'm on LinkedIn. Please feel free to reach out. And if you've got any questions, I, I'm also open to giving some clinical supervision to people as well. So if people do have an interest and it's something, it's a career that they'd like to look at, uh, asking the questions whether this is for me, then reach out and we can connect and, you know, talk about some of the skills and some of the qualities that are really important to jumping into that career pathway. I love it. So good. And all of those links will be in the show notes for you guys listening. And until next time, stay safe and stay forever curious. Leslie, thank you so much for your time. And we will see you in the next episode. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. I'm so privileged that you spent your time with us here today. Hey, can I ask a favor? If you know someone that would benefit from this podcast episode, please share it with them. The more you share, the more we get in front of amazing nurses and we're able to help them see that nursing on their terms across their career is totally possible for them. So I'd love if you could do that. Now, I will see you in the next episode next week. Until then, let's make this year the year that you nurse on your terms. Are you ready? Let's do it.